My life was transformed, not by going to the Olympic Games, but by the desire and aspirations to go to the Olympic Games and the hard work and dedication that it took to get to that point where I could even fathom going to the Olympic Games. And in that respect, that aspect of life is accessible to anyone. And you don't have to aspire to be an Olympic athlete or a Paralympic athlete. Maybe you aspire to be the local political activist or a professor in sociology or an actor or a guru of podcasts. But I mean, my point is, is that you can do it with applying yourself. And that's where the magic happens is realizing that if you dedicate yourself towards something that you can begin writing your own tickets. That's John Moffat. And this is episode 558 of the Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. What's up, everybody? How goes it? Is anything going on out there? <laughs> How are you guys feeling? Are you okay? I think it's going to be fine. I do have plenty of election week thoughts, but I'm going to reserve them for this week's roll call, which Adam and I are going to be recording on Monday and we'll post Thursday. Other than to say for the moment that I do think our democratic experiment lives and our institutions are indeed intact. So that right in and of itself is good news. I did share some thoughts with Esquire Magazine a couple days ago, some ideas on how to navigate the week that we just weathered and the weeks to come. So in the event that you missed that, you can check the show note links or you can visit the Esquire website. Also, I wanted to thank everybody who has pre-ordered Voicing Change, my new book, The Early Response has truly been overwhelming. So thank you for that. I spent five hours the other evening signing copies, uh, all of which will soon be shipped out. The on-sale date is November 10th. It's almost upon us. So to learn more and purchase your copy, visit richroll.com slash VC. We are selling it exclusively through our website and we are shipping globally. And while you're there, take a moment to also check out our Plant Power Meal Planner, thousands of customized plant-based recipes at your fingertips, access to nutrition coaches and more, all available to you for just $1.90 a week. To learn more and to sign up, go to meals.richroll.com. So today's episode. Today's episode holds a very special place in my heart. One of my oldest, dearest friends, John Moffat is on the show today. And John is an incredible human. He's a two-time Olympian. He was the youngest member of the 1980 Olympic swimming team. He's a two-time world record holder and NC2A champion, a Stanford teammate of mine who upon retirement matured into a storyteller, a filmmaker, and a three-time Emmy-winning television producer. This exchange is long in the making. It took seven years, in fact, one of the many stories we dig into today. Uh, but first, we're brought to you today by Momentus. 
Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentous.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I 
get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm going to tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, John Moffat. So this is the story of a swimming prodigy. It's also the story of heartbreak. It's about a kid who started obliterating national records at 12, who would go on to make his first Olympic team before he even entered his junior year of high school, only to have that dream pulled out from underneath him when the U.S. boycotted the 1980 Moscow Games. Four years later, John entered the 1984 Los Angeles Olympic Games as the world record holder and gold medal favorite in his specialty, the 100-meter breaststroke only to severely injure his groin in the preliminary heat, which became this insurmountable setback that once again crushed his dreams. It's a story that was told in Bud Greenspan's amazing Olympic documentary, 16 Days of Glory. And Bud was this legendary filmmaker that would later become John's mentor in the career that he pursued after retirement, a career that began in the pioneering days of reality television, and would ultimately lead John to winning three Emmys as an executive producer of The Amazing Race. An athlete I revered, absolutely revered as a young swimmer. I had pictures of John on my bedroom wall when I was a kid. I first met him when I arrived at Stanford as a bright-eyed 17-year-old freshman. And I just couldn't believe that I had this opportunity to train and compete with him on the Stanford swim team. It really was a dream come true for me. And John and I have been really good friends ever since. So this exchange is first and foremost about John's life and epic accomplishments. It's a rundown of his legendary swimming career, the Olympic trials and tribulations, and the conglomerate of raw athleticism that was Stanford in the mid-1980s. It's also about his work in television and journalism, and it's packed with lessons he's acquired throughout his time as an athlete to push and persevere when it matters most. John is now taking this timeless wisdom that he and others have amassed throughout epic athletic adventures and careers, and is funneling it into a new highly anticipated podcast called Sports Life Balance. It's going to be a good one, you guys. It's launching around Thanksgiving, so stay on the lookout for that. As a heads up, this exchange was recorded pre-election in mid-September, so it holds no discussion about the next presidency. Uh, But you can expect 
a solid discussion on the matters of the day in the forthcoming roll-on segment of the show that's going to air again on Thursday. Nonetheless, I suspect you will find our discourse applicable to our current moment, packed with keys to mastering transformation, honing aspiration, and unlocking potential and perseverance. I absolutely love John. I love what he's about. He is one of my oldest and dearest friends, and I'm super excited to share his words with all you guys today. So let's get into it. This is me and my brother, John Moffat. (laughs) So we sat down and did a two-hour podcast. It must have been 2013. I think it was right after you started. If I remember correctly, I think you might have even been in like the 20s or something like that as yeah. far as the number goes. What are you up to now? 545 or something like that wow. at this point. So yeah. yeah, that was over seven years ago. And one of my very few uh, complete mishaps where I believe like it didn't record at all or something happened, the audio got corrupted, it was unusable, or I just didn't have the audio file. And I remember calling you and going, it didn't work. (laughs) And you can't just repeat it. You know, it's like, we just had this experience. And I always thought, like, in the back of my mind, well, we'll do it. Let's let some time pass. Right. And we'll revisit it. And then seven years went by and we never did it. So... Well, which is kind of the way our lives have been. I mean, we've certainly (laughs) been living them in parallel, but, (laughs) but, you know, Rich... We do disappear from each other's yeah, lives know, for various reasons, whether it be family or other it's circumstances. Uh, just as a prefatory note, John is one of my oldest, oldest friends. I've known you since I was 17 or 18 years old. And you, you know, we've shared a lot of life experiences over the years. But in adulthood, it's kind of been a pick and roll thing. Like, I'll see you once a year, I'll see you and we'll make plans to see each other. And then life intervenes. And, you know, I take responsibility. I'm terrible at like maintaining my friendships. Uh, And a lot of time has passed and time lost spent with you, but I always enjoy seeing you, man. And I'm glad to have you in my life. Well, one of the strengths of our friendships is that that we're able to pick up right where we left off. Yeah. I mean, it's uncanny, (laughs) you know, how we won't see each other for a year or two and somehow we don't miss a beat. And within... A few minutes, we're cracking jokes and right. you know just picking up where we left off. So, uh, you know, there's there's room in life for friends like that, and life is complex, and we get busy, and you just have to be able to pick and choose. It's like if it's worth seeing somebody, maybe you can only see them once a year, or once right. every two years, or maybe you see them a whole bunch of times in one year, then you don't see them for a few more. Yeah, and that's kind of been the pattern. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can rectify that a little bit, but I'm reluctant to make broad promises that I can't keep because I've done that in the past. Um, what's really cool about having you here today, you know, in reflecting, I was reflecting on the history of our relationship in, in trying to wrap my head around um, this podcast today, is that you've played like this sort of important but kind of shadowy role in my life, like behind the scenes, like shadowy. a puppeteer. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> like I, I wrote a little bit, anybody who's read Finding Ultra, you pop up a couple times in the book, so right. people might be familiar with who right. you are. Um, but in many ways, I'm not sure I would have ever even moved to Los Angeles if it wasn't for you. In in certain ways, like almost you know, unbeknownst to you. Like I was a lawyer in San Francisco, We'll go back over the history of our right, relationships, right. but our relationship. But um, I was a lawyer in San Francisco. I was unhappy in my professional situation. 
I really wanted to move down to Los Angeles and get involved in entertainment. And I'd given you my resume. Right. At the time, you were working at, not extra, but it was hard copy. Hard copy, yeah. It was yeah. A hard copy, yeah. Reality TV 1.0, which we're going to get into. Indeed. Yeah. yeah, your career. And then I just forgot about it. And then suddenly, like, I don't know, maybe four or six weeks later, I get a call from a law firm in Los Angeles saying they wanted to interview me, right. but it was a law firm that I'd never sent my resume to. And I, I was like, how do they even know? But it was a really good firm. And I called in sick at my law firm and booked a Southwest flight down from San Francisco to LA to do this interview. I board the plane and you're on my flight. And we're sitting next yeah, to each other. Yeah, we're sitting next to each other. <laughs> and other these are assigned the seats back then. Did we, did we do the math at that point and realize that you had given my resume to Adam Bram and that's how it ended up at Christensen? Or the, I think that was later. Not that, not that I recall. I do remember actually giving my resume, your to resume, Adam, to right. Adam. Yeah, because- Who was kind of general counsel for hard copy at the he time. He was, and he was uh, an incredibly dynamic, incre- amazingly talented and intelligent person. Mm-hmm. Just would- pick up on things so quickly and the subtlety of things were not lost on him. And he, yeah. so I thought that, you know, he would be a good person to pass your resume to. And I remember him being impressed immediately, but I didn't know that subsequently he had passed it on. Right. Yeah. That, there was that, no that awareness that our lives that would meet up once again because of that little thing. And then I end up getting that job. I moved to Los Angeles. I work at that law firm. Uh, and then subsequent to that, I end up leaving that law firm and going to work for a client that client ended up hiring Adam Bram as his sort of personal Michael Cohen type situation. And I ended up working with Adam, who was the original reason that I got that first job in the first place, which all tracks back to you. Uh, Adam has since passed away, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, He was a good friend to to both of us, and there's a whole story there. But um, yeah, man. I've now been living in LA for many years, but it all started with <laughs> you slipping my resume to Adam Bram. That was probably what, circa 1995? 94. 94. Yeah, 94. Okay. No, 96, sorry. 96. 96. I graduated from law school in 94. Okay, got yeah. it. But let's take it back, man. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, uh, to speak to the seven-year window in between you know, when we first did a podcast and, and, and doing it now... I've learned to trust that these things happen when they're supposed to, that there's a reason for them. Um, and what's great about us doing this today is that you're launching your own podcast, right? So we could talk a little bit about that and hopefully I can blow a little wind in your sails to get people interested in, in what you're about to launch. So maybe talk about that for a second. Oh yeah, that would be that would be great. Well, first of all, I have always been immensely impressed with your podcast and the, the scope um, and breadth of the topics that you are able to tackle, um, and just your overall ability just to be personable and to elicit really authentic responses. And um, my life, uh, I was working on a project that you actually were involved in a long time ago, mm-hmm. which was a boycott about the nineteen or a, a film about the boycott of nineteen eighty Olympic Games, mm-hmm. um, and by the United States. Um, and I was working with uh, LeBron James's people. Um, and we said at the outset, this is at the end of, uh, must have been the end of t- 2018 when we embarked on the partnership, that if we can't make, get it made with LeBron James, we we can't 
get it made. It's not yeah. going to get made because you know you and I tried to get it made. Right. We thought it was looking good, and and it subsequently sort of disappeared mm. from the radar. And that happened many times through the years. And it was somewhere around 10, 12 years later that I right. was able to finally partner with uh, Le- LeBron's companies. And Spring Hill, Spring Hill was in, involved as well, but it was mostly an uninterrupted project. Uh-huh. Uh, unbelievably intelligent people over there. They're just, they're just masters. They were really, really great to work with. But the bottom line is, is that the, the, after thinking that we were going to get it made last summer um, for a release this summer, um, everything blew up once again. Mm-hmm. And we had a few opportunities for Hail Marys right you know, toward the end. And that last kind of Hail Mary was at the beginning of this year, uh, really before COVID hit. And so I was basically faced with a situation because it, 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 they passed Mm-hmm. The last, it was like our last, last Hail Mary, they passed and I was faced with, uh, what am I going to do now? Yeah. Because I didn't have a stomach for really continuing on with one foot in I mean, entertainment been, business and one foot <laughs> this out. This documentary has been your passion project forever. I mean, that's, it's, my heart goes out to you, man, not being able to set it up. It's such a great story too. Well, yeah. I mean, it's the bottom line is that people don't want to hear it and mm. that's, that's the key toward doing uh, anything that can be sold and that people that people have to want to hear it. So for whatever reason, there's something in that story that uh, made people not want to want to tell the story with me. Do you think it's because it just happened so long ago? It's ancient history. It's not relevant to what's happening today. I mean, there's so many themes and threads to pull in that story that are completely pertinent to the geopolitical slash sports landscape that we're mired in at the moment. Well, I think, yeah, that, that, that is certainly the case. Um, and, and with the, with the postponement of the 2020 games in Tokyo, I think that, you know, suddenly, okay, we have another U S Olympic team that has to put their dreams on hold, not for four years, like we had to do in 1980, you know, and our next chance was 1984, but for at least a year, Mm-hmm. Uh, provided that the 2021 games go on. And as you know, as an athlete, and as you know, as the ra- razor thin margin for error that you have to have in order to perform at that level, a year is a long time. Super long. Yeah. Super yeah. long. I mean, it will play into the favor of the younger athletes that still could benefit from another year of training. But a lot of the training resources are unavailable at the moment. And for people that are in the twilight of their career, it's devastating. Yeah. Can you really hang on for another year? And, you know, on top of that, there's this, you know, misguided idea that these athletes are well-funded enough to support themselves and train. And that's just not the case with the exception of a very few. It really never has been. Mm-hmm. I mean, with with the exception of a select few, yeah, 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 it's rough. So, uh, well, so yeah, so I felt I felt as though okay, you get these times in your life where you're like, okay, I need to reinvent myself. Yeah. I need to figure out what I'm going to do. And I, I love storytelling, and I love I love athletes. I, I love their struggles and the whole endeavor of of striving to do something bigger than yourself for who knows, just to be human, right? To celebrate being human. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do that I can leverage my experience as a storyteller 
but something that I can do myself and not carry with me the burden of huge financial mm-hmm. implications of actual production where you have cameras and you know lots and lots of employees, et cetera. So I thought, well, let's let's make a crack at doing a podcast. So that's what I'm in the process of doing. Uh-huh. I love it, man. Uh, when you told me this on the phone the other day, I, I, I couldn't be more enthusiastic. I think, uh, you know, there's a, we're in this, you know, golden moment where podcasting has now, you know, become a really mainstream media outlet. There's lots of people starting podcasts, so it's much <laughs> more competitive than it used to be. But nobody is better suited to shepherd these athlete stories than yourself, not only because you are an athlete yourself and you have this extraordinary Olympic pedigree that we're going to unpack, but also you have an entire career in storytelling. And I don't know anybody else who is as qualified or well-suited to embark upon this project. Who else is an Olympic athlete who also has this amount of experience in sharing stories and understanding what makes a story work and why it's worthwhile. Well, I appreciate the vote of confidence, but as you know, whenever you embark on anything yeah. new, there is, there's, you know, doubt. Yeah. And, and we all, we, look, I'm, I'm fully aware that the, the market is pretty much completely saturated and that, you know, you did it right starting your podcast in that was 20, just 2012. Luck. Well, luck is a big factor in success for a lot of things in life. Um, you know, so I'm hope I really appreciate you sitting down as well, um, because you carry with you a great amount of respect and insight and, and you wouldn't have the respect and the popularity if you didn't take that insight with you. But I will be the, the, the least accomplished athlete to ever be on your podcast, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've already interviewed somebody who is a ballerina and didn't have any any experience in athletics beyond that. So that's an art form. Yeah, but but this person is amazing. Cool. Um, what do you do? You have a name for it? Because when we talked on the phone the other day, you weren't sure what you were going to call it. Uh, well, it's a working title right now. Uh-huh. So I wish that I had something completely <laughs> come on, concrete. man. The 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 title you. the title that we are working with right now is sports life balance. Uh huh. So it's a riff on work-life balance that anybody who knows with a family and had to also work, especially for mothers, that it's it's tough. Mm-hmm. And so it's the lessons from sports that will can be reapplied for life. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole premise behind it, that these people who were at one point in their life's great athletes, they have also been able to parlay that success somehow into having successful, thriving, happy mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. And what what are those ingredients? What is the secret sauce and the pixie dust that goes into somebody leading a happy and balanced life? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's, it's more complicated than meets the eye. Um, this is something that I explored with Apollo Ono on the podcast recently. You would think that any athlete that ascends to, you know, the apex of performance understands what it takes to be successful in the world. Like they know how to apply themselves. They know how to set goals and achieve them. They know how to, you know, focus and, you know, they know how to, um, you know, show up in those specific moments and perform like all of these things that are life skills. And yet it's the 
exception to the rule when you see somebody retire from their athletic career and then become equally or you know significantly successful in civilian pursuits. Why is that? You know, it's interesting. You would think like anybody who knows how to do this should be able to just kill it in the real world. And it doesn't happen as often as you would suspect. No, I, I think it, it certainly doesn't. And um, I know with Apollo, you were talking, um, you were talking about the weight of the gold, weight of gold yeah. yeah, which he is featured in. Um, and the weight of gold is, I think, an amazing hour of of television. Well, it's HBO, so mm-hmm. but so it's kind of a short film. Um, but what it what it does is it kind of lifts the veil. This is this is what when groups of Olympians and Paralympians get together, this is this is a topic of conversation. Like how do you how do you move on from your time in sport? A time mm-hmm. when you are at the pinnacle at a very young age, you have immense respect from your peers and from those in positions of authority around you. And suddenly you retire and you land in Nowheresville. Yeah, the clean and nobody cares. shut off overnight. Yeah, yeah. So there isn't any one particular method that works for everybody. Everybody is different, as as you well know. Um, the way I went about doing it is I, I just decided that I needed to completely reinvent myself, and I turned my back on the sport of swimming mm-hmm. um, because I, I was – I was determined to prove that I'm worthy of something other than just being a really good swimmer. I didn't, I, I did not want to just be known as that swimmer right. when I was in my teens and twenties. Right. I wanted to do something else. So well, you developed a passion for storytelling and film while you were still competing and we're going to, we'll get into that, but you <laughs> yeah. had that kind of, you know, working in parallel behind the scenes so that when you retired, you already kind of knew what you wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, I I kind of did. I had no idea how I was going to go about it. Mm-hmm. But what you're referring to is that I was featured in Bud Greenspan's yeah. film about the 1984 Olympic Games because they didn't go very well for me. I but, just watched that clip. It's on YouTube. Yeah. Your little segment. You yeah. can watch it. It's all grainy and stuff like that. But yeah. I watched it this morning and it, it's just, it pulls on my heartstrings <laughs> still to this day. Yeah, it wasn't a very good day. <laughs> no, <it laughs> but, you know, the, 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 you know, I, I spoke that, you know, luck has a great deal to do with, mm. with success and where you ultimate, where your life ultimately ends up leading. Um, and one of those things was Spud Greenspan deciding that he wanted to, uh, use me as one of the feature stories with Rowdy Gaines. It's right. kind of like parallel stories of of the agony of defeat and the ecstasy of victory. Yeah. 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 For those that don't know, Bud Greenspan was a legendary documentarian who was immersed in the Olympic movement and would make these extraordinary documentaries about each Olympic Games. And probably his finest work was 16 Days of Glory, which was his documentary on the 1984 Olympic Games in which you featured in that segment that you just described. Is that fair is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, that's, he made that's a lot definitely. of stuff. I mean, he, the guy was a legend. He he did. I mean, he was he he made I do not know exactly how many official Olympic films, but 16 Days of Glory, uh-huh. which chronicled the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, was certainly uh one that had a quite a bit of fanfare at yeah. the time. Um and 
him featuring me that in that film, it, it didn't, it, the, it wasn't, it wasn't actually being featured in the film that made a difference in my lives, life, but it was him and I really hitting it off and him kind of, or the way I thought about it in my mind was that he was my mentor. Yeah, he that became he was, a mentor to you. He, he really did. And we kept in touch through the years and I certainly would, I kept in touch with all uh-huh. of the updates of what I was up to. And you know that's what that's what changed me. It's uh, mm. you know it's the fact that he was willing to take me under his wing and and he was supportive when you know let's face it people aren't always supportive of you right. going into a career in the entertainment business. Yeah. My family was indifferent to act you know completely uh not non-supportive at right. all, you right. know. So I mean I'm sure you understand yeah. you understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in your yeah, life. it's it's such a scary thing and so unpredictable you know who wants their kid to go into a thing where the future you know is the the likelihood of success is so rare true and it's it is a tough business yeah and you grew up in la but la is a big place you grew up not it's not like you grew up in hollywood around all of this no i grew up in claremont (laughs) (laughs) which you know it's a little different different than culturally different than hollywood yeah um I went to high school in Newport Beach, which is altogether polar Uh opposites in many ways than Hollywood. Who is the guy who does the voiceovers in those movies? The serious that serious tone with this. His brother. Is it? Yeah. Because we used to we used to make fun of that guy in college. You remember you, me, and Kurt would be like. Wyoming Atias. Everyone did that. Like, <laughs> Everyone did that because yeah. it's like that was like that was the that's what rung in your head like when you right. would fall asleep dreaming of you know your standing on the blocks and you picture that voice you know coming out of the ether and like, uh-huh. there was sang. something just so epic about it. It was and timeless. You know, there was there was and it, was, it, it lended a seriousness to it like this matters like this is a big deal. Yeah, I think you much know? like. Like John Williams and his music and his music score, especially the one that mm. he the the scores that he made for the '84 games, there's a signature right. there. You know, you know exactly what you're getting yourself into when you hear a John Williams, you know, fanfare, or or you hear the voice right. from those films. Yeah, you're being psychologically teed up for yeah. something big, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so I'm a kid. Uh, growing up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., starting to fall in love with the sport of swimming. And the cork board above my bed started to become a collage of tear sheets from Swimming World magazine. <laughs> I'm having dreams of you know my own career. And I had some level of acumen and skill. I certainly wasn't the most talented swimmer on my club team. But I learned early that I could bridge that talent deficit gap by by working really hard. Um, and so by the time I was 16, I was starting to kind of make a few waves in my local area. And there was one image on on my corkboard of you. You were, it was a, I don't know if you remember this. You, you couldn't have been older than like, maybe you were 15 or 16 years old. And you were it was like a mid dive like you were you were bursting off the blocks and you were just like shredded and ripped and i just thought like this guy man like he's got it going on <laughs> um, i can't remember that must have been must have been after it was probably taken around 80 maybe 83 or something like that yeah, in the lead yeah, up maybe. to the 84 mm-hmm. games um, you were this is a long way of saying like you were one of my original inspirations and original heroes in the sport of swimming um, just to kind of bring people up to speed, you 
burst onto the scene relatively quickly in the sport of swimming, distinguished yourself, and made your first Olympic team in 1980 at the age of 16. 16, yeah. You were 16 years old. Yeah. You were the youngest kid on the team, right? I was the youngest male on the entire US squad of all sports. All sports, mm -hmm. the youngest athlete to make the 1980 team. I, I, have, been, I, I have been told um, that the person that became the youngest after me was Michael Phelps. Mm. So that would have been 2000. Was 2000, it 2000 maybe? 2000. What was his first? Yeah. I thought he was yeah. 15. Was he I think 16? He was, I think he was 15, yeah, yeah. so. Wow. Yeah. So what was that like, man? Making uh, you an Olympic know, team, do you even, do you even like, were you able to even process that at that age? Of course, of course. I mean, I think even at 16 years old, it's the same facilities that allow you to aspire towards something like that is is also what makes you understand the gravity and the and the largeness of scale of what you're trying to do. Um, so yeah, I certainly was aware. I think it was overshadowed, which is a nice term to because of the boycott because we had found mm -hmm. out that Carter. Carter's boycott succeeded um, and that we were in fact boycotting a few months before the trials. It was April that we actually found out about that. So we knew, mm -hmm. we knew. And I think that no matter what, there was some luster taken off of it, but we also knew that the United States was still gonna pick an Olympic team. Yeah. Um, I will tell you that you are, when you're that age, you don't quite know what you're doing. In other words, in other words, you don't have as many scars and wounds, painful reminders uh -huh. of what it's like to really get your butt kicked when you're really young. And of, co of course, as we get older, we start experiencing yeah. more of that. And as we climb up through the ranks. Yeah. So by the time 84 rolled around, you know, I'd been, I'd been around the block as far mm -hmm. as swimming against the best in the world and, and really getting, you know, you get buffeted about. And so you, it's a very different thing in 84 because I just had more experience under my belt and I understood how rare it was to mm -hmm. actually make it there. And so many of my friends who were uh, with me on the 1980 team didn't make it in 84, yeah. which was a whole yeah, nother like level. Like Craig Beardsley. Of, yeah, Craig Beardsley and Glenn Mills and Sue Walsh and Mary Beth Linsmeyer. There are there are a number right. of them. Um, right. Or, or, or then you take a Sippy Woodhead or, or a Tracy Hawkins, who, who in essence missed their prime. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So there, mm -hmm. there was a fair amount of, of heartbreak um, associated with both those games and, and my peers because we did get to know each other very well. Because right. you know, when, you you know what it's like when you're when you're in the trenches with a group of people like at let's say at Stanford right. you I don't really know get to like know at each that other. Level, but yes, I know what you're saying. The the dynamics are not altogether different. Mm -hmm. Um, you're still just swimmers. You're still dealing with pain. You're still dealing with injuries. You're still dealing with doubt. You know, there's, there's, you know, the inevitable politics, the coach giving you a stupid set. I mean, there's all that stuff. It's still right. is, is, is not that different. You're just, you've just been lucky enough to have been selected to take it to that next right. level. And in 84, you're only 20. Yeah. You know, yeah. at the time that was like, okay, you're at the peak. Now it's a whole different ball game. You're you're right. You it, know you could have been you could have been s still gunning for it at you know 32. It was a very different time back then, and I think what people need to realize is that for the most part, unless you were independently wealthy and your, your family was 
willing to support you. You you didn't have any support no after way. college. Yeah. Well, it so, wasn't even part of the mental calculus. Like no. who was who was continuing to do it? Like it's so different now. But at the time, it was like, yeah, you're done. Well, and case in point, myself and and Pablo Morales decided to take a uh, you know take right. a year to train for eighty eight. Mm-hmm. We had both graduated at that point, and it didn't it didn't work out. Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's fraught with. Um, it's fraught with right. peril, and you and like I said earlier, alluded to earlier, the older you get, the the more battle scars and mm-hmm. and painful reminders yeah. you have of, of what it's like to come up short, because shooting high means you land really hard if you miss. Mm-hmm. We're brought to you today by Recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. 
From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. In 80, you still went to the White House, though, right? Yeah. What was that like? That is a blur. Um, I remember distinctly being filed into a room, and at one point I knew which room it was within the White House, but mm-hmm. it was a room, and we were we were all lined up, and we were in our little red parade uniforms uh-huh. and our hats. Right. And were our they scarves. like cowboy hats yeah, that little, year? It was cowboy hats. <laughs> we had boots on and everything. <laughs> Um, like Levi's did the uniform. Levi's that year. did the uniform, yeah. yeah, both for 80 and 84. In fact, the uniforms were exactly the same in 84 <laughs> as they were in the 80s. They just had a whole bunch of leftover, I guess. Uh-huh. But, um, but yeah, I remember lining up and then in walks the president, which is surreal to be in the same room as the president of the United States. Mm. In this case, it was President Jimmy Carter, the same. Uh, same man who um, basically used us as pawns uh, in order to protest, uh, politically protest Mm -hmm. the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan at the end of 1979. Um, And we were used, you know, for for his political gains. So it was very mixed. I was, uh, all of us were upset, upset. Some people actually said they supported it, but everyone was quite upset. Mm. So it was very bittersweet. And um, I don't remember the exact sequence of things, but at some point we got these medals and it wasn't Carter that gave us the medals, but we had the medals around our neck is my recollection when he came in. And I I remember like thinking, you know, picking up and looking at it and kind of like thinking to myself, great, a fake Olympic gold medal. Right. This is your consolation prize. Yeah. I mean, you don't... You don't get to that level in sports by by getting a participation trophy, mm-hmm. and it really it really felt like that. And and I've heard people say, so, you know, that that was really the kind of the feeling overall. Um, but then he came in and he went down the line. He, I believe he went in reverse alphabetical order. So Moffat, I was about in the middle. In the middle, yeah. And was there uh, anyone who didn't shake his hand? No, not that I recall. Yeah. I, I remember uh, hearing Jesse Visayo. He asked Jesse Visayo, oh, um, how many medals would you have won? And Jesse said, I would have won two golds and a silver. And he didn't ask anybody else that question. Yeah, that just sucks the oxygen out of the room. Yeah, it's rough. Especially, you know, Jesse Visayo was one of those amazing talents that mm-hmm. his, his window was 1980. And, yeah. it, and even though he made it 84, he just was a... He wasn't what he once was. Yeah, he was. He was uh, at Mission Viejo at its peak when they were dominating, and he was the dominant swimmer. Was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, wild. Yeah. So you continue on um, over the next couple of years. You start to uh, develop this rivalry with with Steve Lundquist. He's yeah. like your arch <laughs> nemesis <laughs> in the hundred breaststroke. Um, well, and 200 breaststroke. But he, he, he would take a crack at me and he yeah. beat me, I remember, in 83, right. and I was not pleased. Uh-huh. Um, you guys would go mano a mano all the time. Uh, but he held the world, he he set the world record and reset it a bunch of times over he the did. Next he did. couple of years. I right? mean, it, a mano a mano, like, is, 
he was he was dominant. Right. He he was the one. He that, was a mountain of a man too. He was, and he was just immensely talented. Mm-hmm. He was also a, a really he is a very generous uh, competitor. Uh, somebody who was always collegial um, and friendly, uh-huh. uh, despite both of us knowing that we were going for each other's jugular when it came to swimming next to each other in the pool. Right. Well, that gets played out in 16 Days of Glory. I mean, yeah. that was a you know very heartfelt moment after the final. But working up to that, you go to Olympic trials in 1984, and you're the one who sets the world record right. for the first time. Yeah. You beat this guy. Yeah. And you go into the Olympics as the favorite in the hunter breast. The spotlight's on you. You get up on the blocks for your qualifying heat. Right. Heat seven. What happens? Well, it was the night before was the opening ceremonies. And those of us who were competing the next morning at 9 a.m., because that's when the preliminaries started, we we opted not to go to the opening ceremonies because standing for right six, eight hours in a day the night before you compete is you just don't do that. Right. You can't do that. So we were shaving down actually. And, um, Lundquist was your roommate. He was my roommate. It's so weird that they would put you guys in the same room. It didn't seem weird at the time. Really? No, it it really didn't. I, Mm. I I didn't have any problem with it. I, as far as I know, he didn't either. Um, but it wasn't just the two of us. It was several people in, in the same room. Oh, okay. Yeah, but but um, but yeah. So we were shaving down the night before, and this was the the one of the very first events of the '84 games. Um, and you just you kind of don't know what to expect. But some of the things that I remember were um, getting in to warm up, and the stadium, which I think it had a capacity of about fifteen thousand people. Probably two thirds were already there by the mm-hmm. time we were warming up, and I was introduced um, as I was getting ready to dive in, and it was just such a surreal experience. And you know, then the crowd reacts, and I'm like, "Ooh, this is weird. I've never experienced anything like this before." <laughs> um, to say that I was um, I was psyched and ready to go is is definitely an understatement. It's a very strange thing that. I was never swimming faster in my entire life in the month. It, it, you know, it was a little over a month, I believe, mm. between me breaking the world record at the trials and then competing at the games and the training. I was, I was just, I was crushing on it. Fire. I was on fire, and I had just, I knew I was on fire. My body was just working. I felt good, um, and I, you know, you don't really allow yourself to think, oh, okay, I'm, I've got this, because you don't. You never do. Mm. But I was feeling really, really good. Like I was kind of pinching myself. I was mm-hmm. feeling so good in the water. Mm-hmm. So I was ready for the uh, prelims, and um, and I I usually don't remember my races, but for whatever reason, I remember thinking to myself, "Okay, on that first fifty, take it easy, whoa, horsey," you know. And I just felt great, and. But I was, I knew that I had needed to just really have that easy speed. That yeah, easy you don't want speed to blow your wad in the it's, qualifying it's, heat. And as you know, that easy speed is elusive, mm-hmm. but I had it. And so I touched the 50 wall and I came, uh, did my underwater pull. And keep in mind, there are 15,000 people. And I don't think I'd ever competed in front of that many people before. And I came up from my underwater pull and the crowd like erupted. 
uh, because I guess I was e- either at or just below world record pace, and I wasn't. I wasn't going nearly as hard. Yeah, I, <laughs> it was. It was. Yeah. It, so it was like it was like that that kind of magic, you know. Mm. That, and then um, I remember thinking, okay, get off my fifty wall and and breaststroke, and I, I would think you do with butterfly that you you build off the wall. You mm-hmm. don't just crank out a hard stroke mm-hmm. right off the wall. You build. So I built, you know, usually it was three strokes for me, one, two, three. And then on four, I'm like, okay, let's bring it home. I just wanted to just kind of bring it home. And it was that fourth or fifth stroke. Boom, my leg just went. I felt it go. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, a muscle called the adductor magnus, which is the big muscle that uh, basically closes your legs in, in yeah. your upper thigh on the inside. Right. I just felt it go. You just tore it. Yeah. You can see it when you watch the video. There's a moment. It's sort of subtle, but if you're looking for it, you can see it. And then suddenly it's a whole different picture. And you still, you end up pulling your way, the rest of it, to finish. And you still won, not only won the heat, but you set the Olympic record. I did, I did. Basically dragging your legs. Well, those of us who've had like sudden injuries, and I've had too many of them mm-hmm. that there is a there's adrenaline that kicks in and when you first injure yourself you know you can kind of you can kind of walk it off you can and so i even though i felt it go i i didn't feel any diminishing strength or, or quickness at that point it was that afternoon between preliminaries and finals where the inflammation kicked in and where the blood started you know bubbling up to the surface and the bruising began that the pain really started mm. um but i was I mean, you've seen my reaction at the end of of the race. I knew something yeah. was terribly wrong, um, but the pain didn't really start until probably two or three hours later. Right. When that's when that's when everything collapsed, and I was like, "Oh no, this is this is a nightmare." So you show up for finals six hours later. Did you you got a cortisone shot, and and your leg is completely wrapped in gauze? Well, the way the way it happened is once again, uh, I was in hell, absolutely in hell. And I hadn't been able to talk to my parents. You know, there weren't cell phones then. Uh-huh. My whole family was there. And I remember showing up for the to, to warm up. And I just, I, don't, I couldn't imagine kicking breaststroke. Like, it was hard enough just to, so I couldn't even. And I remember standing on the edge of the pool. And again, they announced me. Number one seed, Olympic record holder. He broke the Olympic record this morning. And world record holder John Moffat is getting in lane four, whatever lane it was. And like the the difference between in the morning and that just incredible bursting confidence that I had in the morning was completely deflated and non-existent. Mm. And I got in and I swam and I I did a 50 freestyle. I'm like, okay. I stopped at the other end of the pool, and I could actually see all the doctors and the coaches. There was there were several of them, four or five, at the end of my my lane. And I remember pushing off the wall, and I'm like, okay, here it goes. Let's see if I can kick breaststroke. And I couldn't. Mm. Just couldn't kick breaststroke. I just couldn't do it. Um, so I got out after a hundred, and my coaches and doctors pulled me aside and said, listen, there's some things that you can do, that we can do, but you know the risk is high. You will certainly be injuring the muscle more. Mm-hmm. But what they what they did is they they said we can give you injections and it wasn't cortisone, it was uh, it was actually um it, it was actually a local anesthetic like a called agent. xylocaine. Mm. 
believe that's the name of it. And this doctor took out like these big syringes and just started shooting xylocaine into this big muscle in a very sensitive area um, so that I could, you know, it, and I was, it was basically numb from my belly button to my knee uh-huh. within like 10 minutes. So I had missed warm up, and I mean, I had to warm up. So the women's hundred free just happened. And before the medal ceremony, they said, you can get in the diving well. And once again, so they wrapped it very tightly with basically adhesive tape. They put Mm -hmm. some sort of sticky stuff on, they sprayed it on and then basically wrapped it in an adhesive tape to hold the muscle together Mm -hmm. as much as possible. And I got into the diving well, which is also within the stadium. Right, it's right there. And, and you're the only one, right? So oh, yeah, there's nobody else on deck. There might be, you know, like a, you know, a, a, an usher or something. There, there were probably half a dozen people even on deck. And so I knew every eye was on me, including my parents, and they didn't know what was going on. But the, the thing I remember is like, okay, this is, this is a moment where I just don't want to regret this moment. I don't want to regret it because as we know, regret is something that's very difficult to live with, especially when it comes to competition, like deciding not to do something. But I really couldn't kick breaststroke. And I just welled up every ounce of strength that I could muster. And I kicked as hard as I could. And I screamed underwater because it just hurt like hell. But every kick thereafter hurt a little less. Mm. And I just... I don't know how far I went. It probably wasn't very far. I just kicked and kicked and kicked and kicked. And it felt like a noodle. Like, you know what it's like to, mm-hmm. to have a, I mean, to have your lip numb, mm-hmm. let alone have a limb numb. Yeah. It's, it's, wow. it's so, so I was able to kick enough where, okay, let's go. And 15 minutes later, I was on the blocks for the finals of the Hunter breaststroke. And was there anything that you did to kind of compose yourself mentally and emotionally to try to approach that? mindset or you're just in the moment like taking it one second at a time when you're a competitor you get good at masking the way you're if you're feeling non not confident i was panicking it was completely panicking yeah i was like it's over it was embarrassing um all the people that put so much into helping me throughout my career and it was just all came crashing down and i also knew there were, I don't know, hundreds of millions of people that were watching it on TV. So my mm-hmm. most horrible personal defeat was unfolding on worldwide television. Yeah. You and, know, in retrospect, obviously, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. You got injured. It's not like you screwed up. I would get embarrassed when you I know. wouldn't win. Yeah. It's just, I think that's part of my makeup. But I don't remember actually doing any sort of calming. Uh huh. I just, I was... I, I don't know what I looked like walking out, but I would think I had pretty much of a poker face. Yeah, you did. And I was one of those hundred some odd million people who watched it live as it happened. And I remember vividly, I think it was Mark Spitz, who when you took your sweatpants off and everybody could see the the bandaged leg, he said something like, oh, this is some kind of psychological ploy, like you're trying to play mind games with Lundquist or yeah, something. Yeah. And I was just thinking, nobody would do that. That's no. insane. Yeah. Clearly, there's something very wrong here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thankfully, I couldn't hear his commentary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you get up on the blocks. Steve Lundquist is like in lane two, right? Something like that. Yeah. 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 Um, you're in the middle of the pool, lane four. Mm-hmm. Uh, you end up 
still pulling out like a fifth place finish in this whole thing, which is insane to me that you weren't like 20 meters behind everybody. Yeah, I I remember I was clearly last when I at the turn. Mm. I I knew because when underwater pull you can you can see a fair amount and you take a glance where yeah. you are and and it was just not a custom. It wasn't something I was familiar. You're not. I used was to used that. to. I wasn't used yeah. to looking at the person beside me and seeing their feet. Right. Um, and I so I knew I was in last. Right. And again, you know what creeped in? It's like I don't want to regret this. I don't want to regret this. I want to be able to look back and know. No, that I tried as hard as I could, that I welled up every possible fiber of of strength and willfulness in order to to get through this. And I remember my arms felt great. Like I still had that right. halo of my body feeling great. And I just said, okay, legs, legs are, one's a noodle. Just bring it home. Bring it home. All those pulling sets I did for years and years and years, now it's time that they come in handy. And I just... I just used my arms and I, I, yeah, I ended up getting fifth, but. But people who who aren't familiar with swimming, you got to understand that, that of all um, strokes, breaststroke, you know, the the vast majority of your power is coming from the legs. Yeah. It was probably about 70% of my Mm. stroke came from my kick. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to even think about it now, but you can look back on that and know that you gave it everything. And, and, you know, that, that image of Lundquist winning, he, Breaks a world record, wins the gold, and then he comes over to your lane yeah. and, and leans down and, yeah. and gives you a hug. Well, that's a relationship yeah. that we had. He yeah. he he was never anything but a gentleman about everything and humbled humbled by the situation, uh, and he made that very clear to me. Mm. But that wasn't the end of your career. So how do you no. pick the pieces back up and try to rebuild after that? Well, I was on this fantastic team called Stanford Swimming. I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, we were we were on a roll. So this was, 84 games were the summer between my sophomore and junior year, between mm-hmm. my second and third year. So I had two more years of eligibility. And through various flukes and disappointments and bad luck, we didn't win. We, Although we were favored my freshman and sophomore year to win the national championships, we didn't. Florida ended up winning. Mm-hmm. So... I had not only the the goal ahead of me to win that team national championship, but also a group of unbelievably uh, tough, accomplished men that were on the team yeah. who cared about me and who who wanted me to be part of their, their team, and I desperately wanted to be part of their team. So I had this built-in support network. That's what people maybe don't understand about a college team is you have you have a support network. And I I certainly had a, a great support network. Mm. So I wanted to get back. I I wanted to get back and try for that national championship that eluded us my freshman and sophomore year. Um I recall that it was probably about the end of October, beginning of November before I got back in to swim because the um the injury of my leg was was pretty bad. Um, the tear mm-hmm. was severe. Um, and doctors really, really didn't want me to re-tear it. They wanted to be sure that it's 100% healed before I did any breaststroke. So I really didn't get back into any sort of meaningful training, I think, until sometime before Thanksgiving. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's like four or five months I took off. Right, 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 um, right. And Stanford does end up winning NC2As that following year. It was I mean, awesome. that, that 85 
86, 87 run. I mean, it was, I mean, one of the greatest swimming franchises of all time. I mean, the talent on the Stanford team during that tenure was unbelievable. It really was unbelievable, and it wasn't lost on any of us. I mean, I remember that objectively you could, you could take world rankings and you can say there is no bigger concentration of world-ranked swimmers on the planet than at Stanford in the mid-'80s. Right, right. I was you know, admiring it from afar, in the pages of Swimming World magazine, which I would hotly anticipate, you know, it's a rival in my mailbox pre-internet, and that was the only way to get any kind of news or information or inspiration about what was going on in the world of this sport, because short of Olympic years, there's no real media coverage happening. So that was the one source of trying to figure out what was happening in this world. And, and they would every year put on the cover the team photo of the the team that had won. And I vividly remember that uh, year that you guys won the first time and the team photo and everybody there, I was just like, that is the coolest thing, man. Like, look at all of those guys. They're all like so extraordinary in their own respective ways. It was cool. Yeah. It was a once in a lifetime experience. Mm. So, so yeah, I mean, there was more to me as a swimmer and as an athlete than just winning the Olympic gold medal. Yeah. Um, I would, I would, count the winning the national championship as as it's as just as elusive as mm-hmm. as winning a gold medal and just as difficult of an endeavor um than olympic gold medal but it's not looked upon the same by the public right but it's something that all of us who are part of those teams you know we we know we did something because the, there was a, a fantastic chemistry that existed and it, it wasn't just the talent it was that we all cared about each other and we all had a good time and swimming's hard, especially, you know, at a place like, well, any college, but a place mm-hmm. like Stanford where so much is, is expected you above and beyond your athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we, we, were, we were really close. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing that yeah. I will always carry with me. It's not the fact that we won the 1985 NC2A team championship and the 86 NC2A team championship. It's the guys who I had the honor of, 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 Swimming with my teammates, right? Dave Bottom. Dave Bottom started it all. Yeah, I mean, what a what a legend that guy is. I mean, he. When you look back and you try to you know deconstruct how that team became what it is, I mean, he really set the tone. I feel like he set in motion and kind of cre- created the foundation and everything built upon like the tone that he set as as a leader on that on that squad. It definitely extended from him. He was, he is an incredibly fun, loving, hardworking yeah. uh, zest for life is not aptly describing uh-huh. what he is like, but just incredibly passionate and talented and jovial and uh-huh. good guy. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. 
Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So I remember arriving at the farm in the fall of 1985, uh, Stanford just seemed like a fantasy land to me. It was so outside the realm of anything that I thought, you know, would be accessible to me. And when I got in, I just couldn't imagine not going. Um, but I was a walk-on, you know, I wasn't somebody who was coveted or recruited for the team. And I remember getting there early and meeting Dave Bottom and him being so genial and cordial to me and inviting me to go run stadium steps with him. And I got to know him before school even started or formal swim training started. I met you and I met some of these guys. I mean, I was just like, I couldn't believe that I was actually meeting these guys who were my heroes, who then welcomed me into this um, subculture that became so meaningful to me. And I have vivid memories of, uh, of meeting you early on. And I remember you were like, you were a postgrad at that point, so you weren't swimming on the team, but you were sticking around to train. No, first time well, we the met, first year. Oh, yeah, I was. We, we overlapped. Year, I was. One year. I was a senior when you were. Yeah, a freshman. one. Yeah, first year. Yeah. That's correct. Um, but I was coming out of the school where you just do what your coach tells you to do, and you're just training four or five hours a day right. and putting in massive volume and never questioning the protocol. You were like. Uh, a strange animal that I'd never met before who was actually taking responsibility for your own training. And there would be morning workouts that you wouldn't show up for, mm -hmm. or you would say, I'm not doing stadiums. That's not good for me. I know mm -hmm. what I need. Mm -hmm. And I remember being very struck by your confidence and self-assurance about what was going to work for you and what wasn't which caused a lot of strain <laughs> with, it, with it, Skip the coach. It, it there was did, a lot of there was a lot of like, on. "Where's Moffat? Call him!" <laughs> like, you know. Um, but you knew what you needed, and you yeah. always performed when when you needed to. You know, but I had never seen that before. So walk me through a little bit about that because I I think that was unique in that time. That was you know to kind of like um, be your own guy. Yeah. You know, certainly in hindsight, with the way the swimmers train now versus the way we trained back then, um, 
that's the you know that's the backdrop. Uh-huh. Uh, look, I, I I went would go twenty thousand meters in a day, and I was a hundred breaststroker. My race was about a minute long or right. less. Like what am I, I mean, doing? Looking back on it, it's insane. It is. It is absolutely insane how much I was expected to train, and it tore me to shreds. It absolutely tore me up. I did not have one of those bodies that could withstand that kind of mm. punishment day in and day out. Right, like you Th- read about Phelps and how he could recover so he could handle that kind of volume. I couldn't. And there were guys on that, a lot of guys on the team mm. that could. I, I couldn't, and I knew that about me. And, that, and that, that, that part about me was really sort of solidified when I was in high school. I didn't, I didn't do doubles until, I, up in even 1980, I didn't do double workouts. That's crazy to me. I didn't do double workouts until toward the end of my senior year in high school. And it was done because I had some coaches who actually had some vision and some parents, my parents, who, mm. were, who were very supportive, but who clearly also had vision. And they didn't, they didn't want to, A, burn me out because I, was, I, I have a personality type that I, I, believe me, I can get burned out. They didn't want to burn me out. And they didn't want to just tear me apart at like 14, 15 years old. Like so many of the kids were already having a problem with. I mean, what, what's mm-hmm. the attrition oh, it's in, in swimming? It's like in, in the teens, early early to mid-teens. And, and so I also shared, like I, I was like, you know, swimming can write me a ticket somewhere. I don't know exactly where, but it can write me a ticket somewhere. Because I was just kind of a normal kid, but I was really good at swimming. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't even start weights until college. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would do, which is also crazy because you were always super jacked. Well, that's the reason I didn't yeah. have to do yeah. weights. Yeah, the I mean, one guy who's got much bigger calves than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I wish they were a bit smaller, I know, but I always. <laughs> I mean, that's a whole nother topic of people yeah. walking up to you in grocery store and saying, "What do you do to get such big calves?" <laughs> I don't mean to digress, but my uh-huh. heavens, I would—I really don't like them very yeah. much. They don't fit in jeans. <laughs> you can't wear decent jeans. They're all show pants no go. No, pants for me. don't fit. They I know. don't. They yeah. don't. Yeah. So okay. Anyway, so we ahead. we digress. <laughs> yeah. What were we talking about? <laughs> you didn't touch weights until yeah. college. Yeah. Um. And even even a little bit in high school, my senior year, I would do like speed circuit stuff. Mm-hmm. I would do like. One of the things I would do is I would do squat jumps, isokinetic squat jumps. That was the closest thing that right. I did to weights. And then Skip also realized that I did not need to do heavy weights, especially my freshman year. I didn't do heavy weights. Maybe my sophomore year, I began to do more heavy weights because uh-huh. my I actually kept growing in, in my freshman year in college. And um, and so. I would do uh, plyometrics early before anybody knew what plyometrics were, mm. which is basically spending as little time on the ground as possible and jumping, you know, using using your pure fast twitch muscle fiber. And I would do reaction drills like Dave Bottom and I would do reaction drills where we would have our eyes closed and, you know, we, somebody would say, you know, go and you'd open your eyes and you'd have to hit whatever it is, um, you know, just like really yeah. neurological, like like teaching your body how to react in an explosive way. That was much more important to me mm. than being physically strong because I that was not my problem. And and you know as as I'm sure you're well aware swimming in a world-class environment with really good swimmers you realize what your weaknesses are very very quickly and you know what your strengths are. 
And so I always had the philosophy. It's like, I really needed to focus on, on my weaknesses, mm-hmm. things that I really, really could improve because me getting incrementally stronger was not going to make me a better swimmer. Right. And thankfully I was surrounded by people who agreed with me on that topic. Yeah. Well, you were way ahead of the curve because now that's standard protocol for swim training. I mean, it's changed so much. Yeah. I mean, you know, for people who are unfamiliar, it really was just get in the pool and churn out these sets up to 20,000 yards or meters every single day, four or five hours of pool time, couple weight sessions a week. And, you know, live your life as a zombie. Like from 15 to 21, I, yeah. you know, it's like, it's all a fog. I could do it. Because you're so exhausted all the time. And you're banking that when you finally back off and undertake that two week taper, that you're going to bounce back completely and be at your peak. And it, it's just crazy when you think about that in the context of a race that lasts 49 seconds or, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. 18 seconds, you know, if you're swimming the 50 freestyle, yeah. that you would be doing that. Um, the sport, I don't know how in touch you are now with kind of training modalities, but only a little bit. It's pretty crazy. Like I, I've, I popped into the, um, the post-grad workout at USC a couple of times over mm-hmm. the last couple of years, Connor Dwyer invited me to, to join them. I've only gone a couple of times, but this is where a bunch of, you know, very accomplished, um, post-collegiate swimmers go to train for the next Olympics, like Lochte is training there and stuff like that. Um, or Banchek was is coaching. He's like my favorite coach. I love Yeah, that I was so lucky to have been um, able to be coached under him. How, um, how amazing and phenomenal is that guy? Still, still at it, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. And the workout resembled nothing like anything I was familiar with. You know, when you get in, you're putting like, you're putting like nets on your feet and you're just doing 12 and a halfs and turning around and all this like short sprint, you know, learning how to explode off the walls. Mm-hmm. Like it was all bursts and power, yeah. which was completely different than the way that we trained. I wish I would have been able to train like that. Yeah, but yeah I was, you would have benefited tremendously. Trem- from, from I, I would have. Well, and when you look at the times, you know, now and how much they've dropped, I mean, clearly they've figured out something that we didn't know. I, I'm convinced I was in a perpetual state, as I guarantee you were, and all of the all swimmers the time. Yeah. in a perpetual state of being overtrained. Yeah. yeah, unless you're that rare freak like that Michael Phelps who has that um, biology that allows them to flush the lactate acid yeah. out quickly and, and recover more rapidly. But I, I would venture to say that you know 85% of elite swimmers were overtrained during that era. For sure. Yeah. (laughs) I was one of them. Yeah. Well, you still, you, I mean, by taking control, you were able to create your own trajectory and your own, your own success path. Don't, don't go thinking I was in complete control. No. I mean, there were, there were a lot of knockdown drag outs. Yeah. Yeah. I I wouldn't, I would say that I got a lot of, uh, a lot of resistance from my teammates who are Mm -hmm. able to withstand the punishment a little bit more readily than right. I was able to. And th- those were the ones I, I knew Skip was going to give me grief no matter what, because right? uh-huh. that's his job. A job of a coach is to push you harder than you think you should go. And so I understand, I understood that type ro- tightrope, but having, you know, my peers and my teammates, you know, mm. like saying, you know, we're questioning whether or not you're, <laughs> you're, you're dedicated. I'm like, you're yeah. kidding me. Right. You know, it's like that hurt. Right, right, right. right. Um, but I wasn't the only one. I mean, Dave Bottom was, he was, he, he, he was the one that He was kinda, cut from that mold too. Yeah. He was yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 Well, that was, that must've been good, giving you some comfort because 
you know, he kind of established that you could do that. Yeah, I think for some reason, I don't think Skip got as mad at him <laughs> as he got at me. Yeah. I, I think what it, I think where it started is my freshman year. You know, he would he would call me in the morning, morning workouts. And I'd wake up my roommates, and they'd be all pissed off. Uh-huh. And I just realized, like, hey, I can pull this. I can pull the plug out of this thing. <laughs> and then, of course, you that made him, your phone. That made him really bad. <laughs> you didn't answer your phone. Yeah. I was like, oh, sorry, Skip. Yeah. Let's just say Skip was prone to explosive moments over the he, years. He was amazing for me. He was very, very good for me. And his drill sergeant mentality, really, that that's what he's known for. Uh-huh. But what he did for me was realize that the team was bigger than what I was doing and that we couldn't achieve ourselves without the team thriving right. as well. And that was a mantra, right? I mean, it, from the Marines, I'm sure it's like you've got to, you, you know, when you're in combat, you have to, you have to react as a team, you know, each other's backs. And, and I think that in that respect, certainly in those eras, era from, well, the, the mid, mid eighties and then the nineties to about 2000, this mm-hmm. is last end. Yeah. Like that suited him very, very well because what he did was he created teams that were really, really close and you don't win national championships unless you're really close. That was his greatest talent. I mean, I you know, Skip is a flawed individual. I'm not sure he was the best coach for me or that the program was, you know, wasn't suited for me. I wasn't going to be a point scorer, but um but he was incredibly talented at trying to create that alchemy that made everybody work in unison. And when you c- come from club swimming, it's like it's an inherently individual sport. And then I go to Stanford, and it's all about team. Mm-hmm. And I just fell in love with that. It all became about how can we cohere as a group of individuals right. to work together. And you could feel it. There was something very special about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, and it's, it's illustrated. I have uh, two photographs from that era that are up in my house. The first, er- first photograph is a kind of a ragtag group of us in 1985. We, um, we assembled in front of Memorial Church in the quad, and it was a blazingly hot day um, with uh, President Kennedy, who was then the president mm, of just Stanford away, University. Yeah. He just passed away, like within a like year a, ago. Like actually, I think like a couple months ago, yeah. not pretty recently. He was amazing. He 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 was amazing. He was incredibly supportive of his student athletes, and he um, he was in a suit and tie. And like I said, and we were all in our speedos, yeah. so we were fine. I mean, it was like a hundred degrees. It was crazy hot, and so we took the picture. And I, I remember he said, tell you what, if you win next year, you wear the suit and tie and I'll wear the Speedo. Mm. And we're like, all right, done. Yeah. Well, a year later, we went again, which you're in that picture. Yeah, I'm in that photo. And we're all in our suits and ties. I don't remember it being especially hot that day, so he missed out. And in, in President Kennedy, the president of Stanford University is... There in the red middle speedo with his speedo. Yeah, yeah. I um, forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. But the but the thing about those photographs that it, I didn't notice it until years and years and years later. As you know, who's missing in those photographs? I don't know. Skip. Oh, I never thought of that. Skip's missing, and you know why? And I'm I've never asked him about this, but I think this was our victory. Mm. It, this is his job to coach us to victory. This is our victory. And I would be really surprised if you were to ask him today whether or not that was a conscious decision. 
I think I think it was, and and it certainly, I believe the intentionality all symbolizes the way he looked upon his role on the team mm. was that it was his job, mm. but it was our victory. Yeah, I've never reflected on that before. That's a very good point. Yeah, he said to me one time, there was a moment of strife. I think it had to do with him and Dave Shraven going head to head no, with no. each other. <laughs> and him, him like screaming at Dave and Dave storming off the pool deck or something like that. And it was a crack in the armor in the kind of unity of the team. You could feel it. And Skip said to me afterwards, you know, if 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 it takes uh, you guys hating me for us to win, I'm willing to do that. And I remember just feeling very conflicted about that. On the one hand, that's a level of self-sacrifice mm-hmm. that I guess I can appreciate, mm-hmm. but I just didn't feel like that was the productive, healthy path forward. That's interesting that you had that reaction because I always assumed that that was the, that was the equation. Mm. I, ne- I don't think I ever thought anything that he, he, he was perfectly comfortable and at ease with us not liking not him. liking him, yeah. and I think not liking him galvanized us in many ways, right? It would, as opposing forces, <laughs> uh, uh, right? The team <laughs> unified in its in, in its antipathy towards the coach. Well, don't you think? That but that's that... like not. I don't know. When you look at like the way that Pete Carroll coaches the Seahawks, or like this this sort of or, or you know this this more evolved kind of uh, sensei, Zen master approach to coaching where you're trying to bring out the best in the individual. Yeah. There has to be, you know, a belief in, you know, that potential, right? Like a, there's a there's a trust there. It's a very, that's a very different thing. Clearly, but yeah. it's all at the same, I mean, you're all trying to do the same thing and the, coaches the, have different the, styles. And the objective is different. I mean, the objective, the objective is the same, right? Yeah. yeah, you want to you want to win. You want right. you want your athletes to be champions and right. to win. And and I think the best coaches also want your athletes to be happy and also uh, succeed in life, not just in yeah. the athletic endeavor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I I guarantee you, he feels that way. Yeah. So if you were to find yourself coaching the Stanford swimming team, what would be your ethos? I haven't even thought about it because there's no way in the world I would want to do that. Yeah. Oh gosh, I don't I don't know. I I don't think I've even developed that part of my brain. Mm. I mean, the the whole athlete side of me is such a stranger to me. Mm. It, it's it's so long ago. Um I have a hard time even picturing myself as doing that and being able to withstand you know how difficult it was, yeah. and the pressures and and all of that. Yeah. So yeah, I I don't want to cop out of it, of your question, but I just I have no idea what how I'd go about that. Mm-hmm. I remember after you graduated and you were still sticking around and and doing some training. At some point, you got recruited by USA Cycling. Yeah, to was... give to, to get on the bike and give it a try. Somebody saw your your calves and your legs and thought this guy might be good on a bike. Yeah, yeah, they they <laughs> threw me on. Well, yeah, I was you, you went out to like the Olympic Training Center, right? I did. I spent three months at the Olympic Training Center. Was that for? Uh, was that for like velodrome racing it or was, road cycling? It was it was the national development team, and it encompassed both uh, road cycling and velodrome cycling. But back uh-huh. then, the uh, the velodrome was out outdoors. Right. Now it's covered; it's in a big bubble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but back then, it was outdoors, and you you, you couldn't ride a velodrome when there's ice everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So I only had the opportunity to ride on that velodrome a few times, but we were training like a lot of the people that I was training with. Um, I was in a more, more sprint track oriented type of, you know, group. Mm-hmm. Uh, but several of those guys made the 88 team that I was, I was training with. Wow. So what yeah. was that like when you just suddenly decided to jump into a brand new sport and you're with some of the elites? I, I just don't, I just don't know where I got the chutzpah. Uh-huh. I really don't. I, I remember. Were you able to mix it up pretty good or was that Not humbling? at first. Not at first. Yeah. Um, I will remember that I ended up showing up in the middle of the night uh, it was a really snowy night and it was just dumping. And so I think I got in somewhere around like 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. And they dropped me off at the Olympic training center in front of these barracks, like housing. Yeah. And they gave me, okay, this is your key. This is your room number. Bye. And I have all my bikes <laughs> and, and I like kind of walk in and I can hear down the hall, there's a TV and it's really quiet. And I walk in and there's this big giant dude and I've got all my bike gear and everything. And I was like, Hey, wondering where I could put my bikes. Uh And it was this guy named Ken Carpenter. And Ken Carpenter was a match sprinter of, Mm. he was a world-class match sprinter. Uh, I can't recall whether or not he actually won a medal, but he, he went, he went to the 1988 Olympic games in match Mm. sprinting. And he was, he immediately took me under his wing and I realized that, you know, athletes are, they, they, they want to have each other's backs. Mm-hmm. But I remember falling asleep that night and my roommate was already asleep. And I'm like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever done. Yeah. I have no idea what I'm in for. But and kind of badass. I don't know. Seriously. Was what gave me the idea? hubris? Well, like, I mean, Eric Hyden had kind of set that precedent, right? And Eric was at St- at Stanford Medical School he, at the time, right? Did you ever meet him or talk yeah, to him about it? Yeah, yeah, I did. I rode with him a few times. And thing is, he had a lot more saddle time than me. At, at this point, you know, I'd been actively riding and, and training for maybe six months. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I remember getting up the next morning and it was like a clear day in Colorado Springs, but there's about hip deep snow. Uh-huh. And I meet my roommate awkwardly. <laughs> a few years of this guy sleeping next to me, I've never okay. met him. We're gonna have to live with him for the next three months. <laughs> and it was run back then by a group of uh, Polish guys. Um, and the the main guy is a guy named Eddie Eddie B. Eddie Eddie Bor- Boroshevitz, I think was his last name, but we all called him Eddie B. And Volter. And he they they ran it like an Eastern Bloc country. And I remember him getting in front. There's about there was about eighty or ninety of us. And I didn't know anybody. And I remember very clearly Eddie B getting in front of everybody. He goes, okay, guys, today it's snow day. And everyone's like, yeah, thanks. And today we play snow soccer, no uh-huh. rules. It was just a disaster. What does that mean? Well, we would go, we went out on the, we went out on the field, which was in the middle of the Olympic training center back uh-huh. then. And like I said, it was hip deep snow and he gave us a soccer ball and we divided us up into teams and we're supposed to score a goal somehow. (laughs) And it was just, and it was such a great way for me to get my bearings because I realized that, you know, these people are not supreme soccer players. Uh They, they were great athletes on the bike and we just laughed 
And and you know the, th- the thing well, I'm still lifelong friends with one of the guys I was there with, and we recall you know you, we'd kick the ball and you couldn't see the ball. Right. Well, then some smart aleck got the idea. Well, I'm just going to pick it up and run with it because there's no rules, right? right? So Eddie B blows his whistle. He goes, guys, guys, come on, one rule, you know. And obviously the uh-huh. rule is we needed to kick the ball. But that was I remember that kind of eased me into things. But I got I got dropped on my first real ride. Um, it was like a 90 or hundred mile ride and I got dropped. Like, mm. I mean, I had never, it was humiliating, um, where one of the coaches had to actually take the back of my saddle and grab onto the back of my saddle and catch yeah. me up to the group. And I remember getting up to 65 miles an hour and I'm like, uh, I'm terrified. Yeah. And that's the other thing about cycling, as you know. <sighs> Because you and I both have had our fair amount of tumbles, that there's a fear is a doesn't exist in swimming like it does in cycling. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you have to have complete balls and be totally unafraid on these descents. Like it's it's death defying. I was afraid. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And if you if you have any fear at all, like that's the edge that's going to prevent you from moving forward. But how long did you do that before? Did you reach? I mean, you got to a certain point, right? And then you had to make a decision: Am I going to continue with this or not? Well, that post grad, um, I had a I had a series of crashes. I realized that, you know, the bike handling was definitely an issue for Mm -hmm. me. And I remember in spring, I had a I had a Lulu of a crash, Um, and. But I did end up making national the national time cut for the kilo. Um, and I, I kind of was at one of those junctures. It's like, okay, do I keep training? I still had it in me, something, a fire still burned. And I thought, well, can I make 88 in cycling? No way. Mm. Maybe 92 if I, you know, if I dedicated myself to it. But I didn't want to wait five years. No, I I, I didn't want time to. to. Time to call Bud Greenspan. Yeah, start so, working on a new path. Well, and what I ended up doing is I ended up training for '88, and and that didn't work out well either. Lived uh-huh. with Pablo and right, and trained with uh, you know with uh, some really really good that. athletes, and it just didn't it just didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that was that was probably a study in overtraining, right? That in was that little cohort. That was the hardest I'd ever trained in my entire life. And I'm thinking to myself, I was like 20, what was I, 24 years old. Uh-huh. And I remember thinking to myself, why am I training harder now than I, when I was 16? Um, but I just wanted it so badly. And I, and I just, you just get caught up in the whole thing. You know, Pablo Morales, who was the world record holder, he was I mean, training. He was, he'd, he'd, he'd gone undefeated, basically. Yeah. I mean, he was the most winningest NC2A swimmer of all time. All time still is. It was just a foregone conclusion that he was going to make the team in multiple events and right. be the team captain. Well, and that's what he was doing. And I kind of got swept up in it, you know, where I had this sort of inner John barometer. It's like, okay, I'm way overtrained right now, or I'm, I, I need to recover, or... I didn't, I ignored that this time because I got swept up in the whole thing. It's like, I want this so bad. I want this so bad. You know, and that was a really, really bad thing to do. Like mistake wanting something so bad for doing something that you know is bad for you. Mm-hmm. Cause I knew, I, I just felt, I just, I was getting sucked down the drain um, and I could feel it. It actually started in the, in the fall and I just never, I never recovered. And unfortunately there's a whole bunch of us who ended up, getting sucked down the yeah, drain as well. And we just, we, it was, it was a disaster of a year for so many of us that were training. I actually quit the program and 
went back and trained with Skip oh, at Stanford. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what's instructive about that is is this idea that okay, well, it's game on. We're going to put all our chips on the table. We're going to live like monks. We're going to cloud out everything, and mm-hmm. we're just going to push ourselves beyond anything that we've ever you know experienced before. And that will reap the result that we seek. And it doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And it, but it's easy to talk yourself into that, uh-huh. especially when you've got a group think mentality like yeah. you do in certain teams. This team wasn't, we weren't, we weren't bonded like we were like the Stanford team you know, where you felt comfortable enough going against the coach or, or something uh-huh. like that. And it was, you know, led to my ruin as yeah. far as that 1988 goes, yeah. as far as my swim career in 88. So when you reflect back on your career now, I mean, you said in 84, you didn't want to have any regrets. I mean, do you have regrets or what is your relationship to to your career? Thankfully, I don't. Yeah. I don't. I think the, the closest thing that I have to any sort of what if but it's not a regret, was in 1992. Um, I believe it was late 1991. And um, I, we, I did the Stanford alumni meet. And I was, I don't know what got into me, but I, I started swimming and I got, I, I was swimming so fast. And uh, I remember I, this. I was, I was <laughs> like, I couldn't believe it. You thought, I thought 84, I was swimming fast. I was swimming way faster. And there was a rule change in breaststroke. Uh-huh. So I started playing with that stroke and I was, Right, Barrowman had kind of revolutionized yeah. the rhythm and the technique. Right, so I kind of studied that, and it started to click. And I, and I mean, I was just absolutely hauling. And that, I, like I said, I think it was 1991 would have been like October of 1991, and uh, Pablo was there, and I ended up like basically going about the fastest 50 I'd ever gone, including in college, and just. I mean, just was hauling ass. Off how much training? Not very much, like yeah. 3,000 yards three times a week. That's nothing. Yeah, but it just goes to show you how overtrained we were. Right. And how we well, weren't you, really using our all, brains. I mean, you're such a racehorse too. Like you're a guy who can walk away and then come back and just dip your toe in it a little bit. And then suddenly you're at a razor's edge. And I know this from seeing you, you kind of, you, you go through these spurts where you're into master swimming and then you'll disappear for a while and then you come back and it's like, you come back and you're kind of like, you know, not looking so great. And then like a week <laughs> later, you're like doing world record splits in like a master's workout. Look, those days are long <laughs> over, Rich. I mean, yeah. please, come on. Um, but are we back to my regret there. Uh-huh. Um, the only, the closest thing to, it was, I would call it a what if, not a regret, was at that meet, Pablo unbeknownst to me at that point would I had already started training uh-huh. for 1992 uh, because you know like I said earlier Pablo Morales the world record holder the favorite no one thought he could lose didn't make the team in 1998 or 1988 yeah and he said what do you think about training for 1992 and I I remember in the back of my mind, I was swimming so fast. I kind of like, I let that fantasy kind of sink in. Like, so that's one of the reasons that I think I actually trained a little bit so that I could see what I could do at that alumni mm. meet. Mm. So obviously that was kind of in the back of my mind, but I had this overwhelming dread of the thought of getting back into the pool and, and being as dedicated as I needed to be in order to make that 1992 team. And I, I remember when he asked me, come come on, train. And he asked me, you know, he asked me several times. And I remember each time I got more and more resolute that I don't have it in me. 
Mm. I just don't have it in me. So, you know, part of me is phys- physically, I think perhaps it could have been something that could have happened, the 1992 mm-hmm. games. And, and you know, just to remind your listeners that Pablo Morales ended up winning two right. gold medals in the 1992 Olympics. And right. So re- he, and, re- and it was redemption for him. It was it, it, one of the greatest moments in Olympic swimming history. I mean, he, he doesn't make it in 88. He's like, all right, I'm done. Goes to law school, does mm-hmm. two years at Cornell Law School, um, goes home for family reasons, and decides to you know stick around at home, which is right nearby the Stanford campus. Right, starts kind of dipping his toe in the pool and showing up at the noon Masters workout, and before you know it, kind of under wraps, he starts training again. Yeah, um, yeah. makes the Olympic team goes and beats, was it Anthony Nesty that he beat in Barcelona for the 100 fly I don't that year? I do yeah. remember it was Barcelona. Yeah, it was Barcelona. Yeah. Um, just one of the greatest comebacks ever. For sure, for yeah. sure. And, you know, his mother had just passed away the previous year. Mm. So there was a lot, there was a lot to it. He had, yeah. he had a lot invested personally and, and he pulled it off, which is, I mean, cojones, like yeah. serious, serious stuff that he was able to do that because right. that's difficult. And I just was not convinced that I had it in me. Mm. Yeah, and if you have that doubt, I mean, you got to be all in, right? Right. And it was one of those things, you know, you ask about regret, and it's like, you know, I think about it from time to time. Do I regret not doing that? No, because mm. I felt very confident that I, I just didn't have it in me. Right. I didn't want to. I, 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 I had already decided I wanted to reinvent myself yeah. at that point, true. Which you did. You go on to win... Three Emmys? How many Emmys have you won? Three. <laughs> it was many years later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, how many Olympic athletes have Emmys? I don't know. Probably not very many. Yeah, I couldn't tell you. Um, but this begins somewhat humbly in the early days of reality TV when reality TV wasn't quite what it is now. I mean, now we live in a reality TV world, of course. But yeah. you start out at hard copy, which was kind of like an extra type investigative slash entertainment new show that would air like every night. And then yeah. you end up at uh, at the working as a executive producer at The Amazing Race. Uh, I wasn't an executive producer, and that was also many, many years later. Many years I was, later, yeah. I was at The Amazing Race. But, um, you know, I, I started out, um, it was a Stanford alum, rolled the dice and letting me write um, a series for Discovery Channel way in the early days. This was, this was around 1992 mm. that I was I, I got to write this this series, and um, and then that's what led me ultimately to realizing that I love telling stories. Um, I never in a million years thought that I would make my living being a writer. I don't like writing. I really I just don't like the process of writing, but people kept hiring me to write, and then that ultimately led me to land the position in hard copy, which back then was, nobody knew quite what it was. They called it tabloid TV, but it was part news, but they also broke many, many, many of the biggest stories of that era. Uh, Michael Jackson being one of them. Uh-huh. They were they were on the forefront of OJ Simpson. Um, so, and that was the era that I was in. It was this very strange place to be, but I'll tell you that we mentioned Adam Bram. He was just one of them. It was of all the crews that I've ever been part of, Collectively, that was the most intelligent group. Just whip smart. That's so street smart. I wouldn't have thought that. So smart. Like wow. you, you never doubted the uh-huh. intellectual capacity of any of these people. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah. So how long were you at Hard Copy? I was there then? for about three and a half years. Mm. Yeah. And you know, I, 
I got into the Directors Guild because they started having me direct shows or mm-hmm. direct mm-hmm. episodes. And I found my niche. You know, my niche really wasn't. I actually worked on the Tanya Harding story. Oh, you did? Yeah. Um, in it, what way? I was the, I believe my title back then, I don't know if I was in the Directors Guild, but maybe I was. It was, it was maybe directed by. I directed the the episodes. Uh-huh. So in I, Tanya, the movie, yeah. you know, they have yeah, the- yeah. They have the hard copy guy. I remember that. They didn't. Yeah, yeah. They didn't do their research because it was actually me. It was you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was so the did point you go person. And, oh wow. I was the I was the point uh-huh. person. I mean, there were people out in the field. Yeah. And, but I I was the one responsible for staying up all night and cutting the stories together and making sure that it hit the satellite the next day wow, for that's air. Wild. Yeah. Um. And and I kind of found my niche. My niche was not necessarily OJ or Michael Jackson or although I did lend a hand if they needed you know to to do some shooting or writing mm-hmm. or whatever. My, my niche was kind of like a funny little niche that I thoroughly enjoyed, which was paranormal. I love the mm. paranormal stories. <laughs> love the paranormal UFO stories. UFO stuff? UFO, ghosts, all that stuff. <laughs> Bigfoot? I, I just loved Bigfoot. We went, uh-huh. uh, probably the most infamous and one of my favorite Bigfoot or paranormal stories I ever did was a Bigfoot story about a Playboy playmate who was on a shoot and she was in her motorhome and Bigfoot walked in front of her. It was all on camera. And and I remember we called it Playmate and the Primate. Oh it was so it was just it was like tongue firmly in in, yeah. in, in cheek. And uh, a more so innocent much of it. Time. It was more innocent of a time. And I also approached it. I I, I realized that I had a knack for kind of like figuring out what stories were all about. And the way I looked at these, it's just like a campfire story. You know, you don't, you don't want it too long and you want to be able, you want it to go someplace and you want it to deliver, you know, and these paranormal stories are like that. I also, uh, they would send me on all, all the extreme stuff. Like I would, every, every spring they would send me out to chase tornadoes. And uh-huh. so there were, well, that's fun. There was, there was a, there was a lot of, I mean, I did get a lot of gratification. I ultimately, it, it wasn't for me. There was kind of a self-selection. I, I wasn't happy there. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up, doing uh, network specials after that. Um, I remember though, so I got that job at the law firm and yeah. I quickly was miserable <laughs> and <laughs> suffering. And occasionally I'd go to the Paramount lot and go yeah. see you and it just looked like so much fun compared to <laughs> my day-to-day experience. It was like a big, yeah. it was like a big rumpus room. You uh-huh. know, we were a whole, we, we encompassed like a huge portion of the soundstage. And it was just, we called it the bullpen. Mm. And it was like, you know, there's the assignment desk, and then there were the segment directors, and then there were the the you know, there, and it was everybody was all in one place. So it was it was always just this like fever pitch of activity, um, just in, in in the energy. You know, in fact, I uh, you know I I had to put headphones on so I could concentrate because mm-hmm. it was so loud, um, and there's so many distracting things happening all at once. When you look at news today and the kind of reality TV nature, the performance yeah. aspect of what the news cycle has become, you know, do you reflect back upon those hard copy days and see, yeah. you know, how A ends up at Z? I do. And I feel bad about that, that I do believe that that this was the very beginning of, of kind of like really taking not being completely objective and taking a perspective because it, it, it a lot of the a lot of the stories had perspective but mm-hmm. a lot of the stories had had a lot of newsworthiness right. as well but fundamentally it was this news entertainment hybrid right, right. where it was like it, it was about like how can we get people engaged as uh, my time going on it, it went from pretty much a, 
a, a news magazine show, a daily news strip magazine show to at the end. And I think this is one of the things that made me uh, realize that it's not for me. It became more and more and more like Entertainment Tonight. Uh-huh. You know, it was more entertainment based, celebrity based. And I just, I, I was, I just wasn't, I knew that wasn't for me. Right. You just, um, you just become like a, a publicity adjunct of the studios at yeah. that point, feeding up whatever yeah. narrative they want about the next movie or TV show. Yeah. I mean, I, I it was an amazing life experience, but it's not necessarily a, a chapter that I would like hold up and, as, right. you know, oh, this is one of the highlights, something I'm very, right. you know, just super proud of accomplishing. It's not like that. So how do you end up at The Amazing Race? Uh, well, I saw the show, uh, the promos for the show. It was 2001. I called The Amazing Race. And I'm like, I love that show. I love that show. I want to work on that show. So quick short history. I believe they aired one episode and then 9-11. Mm. And so the the show was basically, it was put on the shelf because nobody wanted to see a race around the world for a million dollars after what happened in New York City on 9-11. But I also figured out, like it's almost like all roads lead to hard copy. One of my coworkers at hard copy was the executive in charge of production at The Amazing Race. And I got in touch with him and he ended up returning my phone call saying, you just missed it. You would be perfect here, but basically we've just hired everybody for season two, Uh but I'll remember you for season three. So it was that guy who remembered me when they were coming around for season three and hiring for season three, and I got hired on season three. Um, You know, season season three, um, excuse me if it's a little bit fuzzy, it was almost 20 years ago. (sighs) It's crazy. (laughs) Um, But, you know, season season three was a, a fantastic season. And what they did is they immediately picked up a season four. Um, and so I was, I finished up, I think in like November or something. Mm-hmm. And then I had to be back boots on the ground at first week in January. Mm-hmm. And so then we did season four and, um, they didn't air it. They didn't air season three and we're all thinking to ourselves, oh gosh, it's doomed. They it's didn't doomed. air the entire season. Yeah. Well, they, they just, they've held it. They just held it. Wow. But some strange things happen, a strange confluence of, we talk about luck and luck playing into our own little successes and and failures in our our lives. And what happened was they held that until the summer, which back then conventional wisdom was if you air something in the summer, you're putting it, you're basically putting it out to pasture to die a slow death silently without much notice. But a strange thing happened is that people started watching Survivor, which was the sister show. And programmers and networks started realizing that much, they, much, they yeah. underestimated how much pent-up demand there was in the summer for new programming. Burnett wasn't behind Amazing Race, no, though, no, right? It was, He's, Ber- it was, what's the Bertram? Bertram Van Munster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, I knew he had a crazy yeah. name. Yeah, yeah I've met that guy a couple, I mean, he's a character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's, and I, I worked with him quite a bit, and I worked with him on, on uh-huh. subsequent projects as well. So, um, but, uh, but so we were like doing season four, and, and actually the morale was pretty bad because we knew that they weren't airing season three in the fall. Because no, I guess that would have been that would have been the winter. 
They weren't going to air it in the in no in the spring. I'm sorry, that uh, the cycle. They didn't air it in the spring season three, even though it was all right. On so camera, you're working on four, and you're on like, four, Why are and we're we like, doing it's this? dead. Not, yeah, it's dead. And they so sure enough, they put it out to pasture. Um and uh, and then they aired that summer, in the summer of must have been 2003. They aired it that summer, and it was just it just crushed it. Mm. Not only did the viewers love it and it got great ratings, but the critics just raved. And that's the first year it won the Emmy. Mm. And let me tell you, it was just a furious pace after that. Um, and uh, I didn't win for season three, or I wasn't. I I, I would even though I was I was technically called a show producer. I was responsible for two episodes in the entire season. Um, that's just the way it all worked out because you you had to put it together so quickly. Um, so I wasn't eligible because it said show in front of producer. Yeah. Um, so then uh, the next season that I did, um, I was supervising producer. Yeah. And then then they then then I, that's that's what led to that freight train of uh -huh. being able to or gravy train whatever you want to call it of being able to be swept up in this whole Emmy craze world. Yeah, I mean, it was a phenomenon. And it's like this perfect confluence of your talents. Like you have the storytelling thing, you had cut your teeth in television, you understood what makes for a good narrative, but you also have the athlete and the competitor mindset that allows you to kind of cut to like what's gonna work here and what's not. It was hard. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you the main That'd be thing. Exciting though, it was you know as you, as you know, I mean I'm sure people look at your life and go, oh man, it must have been so exciting to do all these first time feats and things like <laughs> yeah. that. As you know, yeah. it's gnarly, mm. you know. And there, mm. there's a lot of moments where you're left alone inside your head, and you know, like what people what people don't always necessarily realize is that you know you have these accomplishments and people like to celebrate accomplishments and others. But what you don't necessarily realize is that there are no photographs or videos or mementos of those hard times, uh -huh. those inevitable hard times that it takes of that relentless work that it takes to get there. Because without exception, in order to do things that are big like that, it takes an enormous personal sacrifice mm -hmm. and an enormous amount of personal dedication and hard work in order to get there. And then where luck plays into it is bad luck, in my case, in 1984, and good luck, in my case, for The Amazing Race. That, Yeah, but the, the, the concurrent like through line is you keep showing up, right? And oh, yes. And you approach yes, that's... it with that mindset. Like all those tools that you learned as a competitor, as a swimmer, come into play in the professional world. That... I, mean, I can't imagine. You must be sitting on thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of footage and and tasked with trying to figure out how to, you know, create something special out of what's mm -hmm. just raw footage for, of people cruising around. Yeah, the season four, I was uh, responsible for the for the premiere episode, um, and the premiere episode has the most teams, has the most work moving parts. It also has, just by nature of being the first episode, it's got a lot of things that tend to go sideways. Uh huh. Um, and you know you need to do a lot of workarounds, but I remember that um, of just raw footage that went into that. F I, I believe we, we we would cut that to be ninety minutes, so the clock it would be somewhere around an hour and four minutes, I think. Uh -huh. So to make that ninety minute airtime 
we had over 100 hours of raw footage. And you just couldn't do this show. There was there was no, you, they didn't, the digitizing process was completely different back then. We watched on VHS. Wow. Like you got really right. good at shuttling VHS. Uh-huh. Um, and you, ha- you, you were responsible for everything that was on those tapes. You needed to know it inside and out and just the logbooks after logbooks, just the amount of resource that it took just to absorb what happened because these cameras and sound people would go out with these teams and it would be, it'd be a void. Be like radio silence. You wouldn't yeah, know what was happening. You don't know what's going on, right? And yeah, you had interviews, you know, at the end of the day, but you truly don't know what's going on with each team until you watch everything unfold moment by moment. And that was, I think, probably like just the, so daunting uh-huh. to put these things together. And and you're right. It's like how do you how do you take a hundred hours of raw footage and make it into something that tens of millions of people will tune in and right. celebrate? Um, it was, it was rewarding, Yeah, yeah. but it was, it was so hard. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I remember moments over the years where you were completely burned out on it. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, I, I, I definitely burnout was probably my biggest enemy. I think ultimately I couldn't withstand just the unpleasant, the inherent unpleasantness Mm -hmm. of the entertainment business that you just have to deal with on a day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. to varying degrees. doesn't mean I wasn't on shows that were just that were absolute joys. There were yeah. certainly those, but um, but yeah, it just it just wore me down. Um, in the way that that hard copy was very much a progenitor of of what news looks like now. Um, how do you think about you know what the reality TV reality kind of lifestyle that we all live on? Like you know the, now it's YouTube and vlogging and like yeah. everything is reality TV. I mean you yeah. are. You know, early on, like the, that was the first wave of this kind of programming finding its way yeah. to network, and now it's just, you know, atmospheric everywhere you turn. It's ubiquitous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's certainly a continuum. I mean, you can you can you can trace back that continuum to those days when, you know, when reality TV was ultimately really sort of embraced by a guy named Mike Darnell. Right. He, yeah, that's right. He was the he was the guy who really genius. ushered it in, right? Absolute genius too. Mm. Don't don't think it's only blind luck that got him to where it was. It was also he's he's absolutely brilliant. Mm. Um do you watch reality TV no, now? No. I don't. I I've ne- really never been interested in it. <laughs> yeah. I, I and that was <laughs> That's great. That was maybe uh-huh. I, I need to I need to throw out a caveat to that. I'm interested in real stories. Mm-hmm. And reality TV is basically highly produced yeah, storytelling, to say the least. Yeah, um, and although I do, I would agree with that. But during quarantine, I mentioned this on an earlier podcast. But <laughs> our family, we would have uh, after dinner, we would watch Queer Eye, uh-huh. which is fantastic. I know, I know, it's it so is. fun. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Come on, you had to do Tiger King. Oh well, yeah, we did that. I mean, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, everybody yeah. did Tiger King. Yeah, but that, that was, was a that was a docu series. Well, still reality TV. I mean, yeah, okay. it, it just, all right. You know those 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 stories from a guy who's 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 been behind the curtain. Those you know. Those so when stories. you see something like that, you're like, oh, I I see what they're doing here. No, not always, but sometimes mm-hmm. I do. Yeah, sometimes I do. It just takes a great deal of work. I mean, what, what you're doing is the story is already there. Like in the raw footage, the story is already there. You just need to sculpt it out. Uh-huh. And figure out how to tell it because that's the that's what editing is, right? It's compressing time and it's compressing moments in order to make something more meaningful. Because 
like the passage of, of a story is painfully slow and it's certainly not ready for yeah. something like a half hour of television or an hour of television vision, much less, you know, 40 seconds of a YouTube. Right. So it's, it's, it's all compressed and exaggerated. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, all right. Well, let's pivot. The last thing I want to explore with you is um, the work that you, that you uh, do with respect to the Olympic movement. I know you're yeah. really involved in um, the Paralympic movement and the Olympic movement and LA 24 and all that kind of stuff. So what does that look like? Well, in it was 2007. And like I said earlier, I, I kind of consciously turned my back on, on all things Olympic uh, athletics. Wouldn't consider myself necessarily a sports aficionado. However, I am an, I love athletes. I love the stories of athletes. And it doesn't mean I don't watch sports, but I'm not like an avid, like football, basketball. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? That's, that's no, not, you're like me. I love the Olympics and I like watching the tour de France. Yeah. And, you know, oh gosh. Is that like been that? the greatest like, thing? You know, weird. I know you're into formula one too, yeah, right? right? Like the right. weird sports. Yeah. Except in the rest of the world. Uh huh. They're weird sports. Right. Here. Yeah, exactly. The rest of the world yeah, yeah. is not weird. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, so how I got, how I got, I, I kind of reluctantly got sucked into being, uh, serving on a board, the board of, of the Southern California Olympians and Paralympians Association, which in, is, is in essence the alumni group for Olympians and Paralympians in Southern California. It's uh -huh. the biggest and oldest chapter in the country. And uh, the president then asked me to be on the board. Um, and I was, it was kind of like, I was definitely reluctant. I was kind of like, oh, I don't know about this. And so I started doing some work and I kind of enjoyed it. And there was a there was a familiarity and a joy that and a source like it was it was like getting back to my roots. Like when I would hang out with these people, these people who we might not have been on this exact same teams, but we have a shared, we have this shared parallel experience, yeah. oftentimes very separate. But we all know what we there's there's a there's a real bond there's a real bond in that and it's it's really fun and it's it's also a kind of an exclusive club that I found that I shunned it on purpose it was part of like who I was I, it's mm. like oh I don't need I'm not the Olympian yeah. I'm something else but it's kind of I got fun to embrace it um, and I got involved in more and more and more things um, I started doing some. Uh, uh, do, do being asked to do events with uh, LA 24, which is now LA 28, but back mm -hmm. then it was LA 2024, the LA bid mm -hmm. for the for the uh, for the Olympic Paralympic Games, and I just started having more and more and more fun, and 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 as with most paths that you initially resist taking, oftentimes you start realizing, well, maybe maybe there's a reason that I started down this juncture, and. Um, the then president of the Southern California Olympians and Paralympians was moving. And she asked me if I would like to assume the presidency. Mm. And again, I was reluctant, but I did it. Um, and it's just been kind of a snowball effect. And I've gotten incredible joy out of working with, with children. Like I, I'm, uh, I, I work a lot with uh, Ready, Set, Gold, which is um, it's an organization that sends Olympians and Paralympians into schools all over Southern California to teach the importance of health and fitness to oh, cool. elementary school and junior high kids. Not not so unlike the message that you, I'm sure, sit, you know, talk about all the time throughout your career. Um, and and then, 
you know, uh, various foundations that raise money. Um, the Trident Swim Foundation, who we are raising money for uh, uh, swim programs in underserved neighborhoods uh -huh. where they don't have access to pools and they don't have access to college counseling. And so it's a hybrid of swim team, college counseling to really show kids that aren't necessarily exposed like we were to what the world is outside of high school and you know and, and as yeah. far as undergraduate yeah, yeah and so it's just exposing them to that and i've just been i've just been really really enjoying it um all the while kind of keeping one foot in you know in the entertainment business i mm -hmm. uh created a uh, a series um a, a game show actually was that the one with the like the stock cars yeah yeah it's where yeah, you showed me the trailer yeah where you strap you strap contestants into the passenger seat of a race car dri being driven by a race car driver and they have to uh they have to um answer trivia questions like in, <laughs> on jeopardy it's, well they're like pulling g's on yeah yeah like just having having the whatever. absolute daylights scared out of them <laughs> it was like that clip in um what was the movie the ford versus ferrari where yeah they, right like yeah, the yeah. like where they put the deuce uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. ford the second right 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 <laughs> yes indeed it was like that except uh -huh. we were we were trying to to stump them with that questions. seems like a no-brainer it is a no-brainer uh as far as concept goes uh but you learn something in production along the way and sometimes things are just they're just too, there's too many working parts. Mm. There's too many volatile links in the chain that if one breaks, the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, and we just had one too many of those things mm. happen. So for that reason, primarily, it it just didn't take off. There was a lot of people super excited about that, uh -huh. and and I actually joined forces with Bertram Van Munster to to oh, do that. Did. And we, uh -huh. we we always had a we always shared our gearhead. You know, we 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 love cars. Right? And, yeah, you're a car guy. Uh, yeah. Do you have you have a Shelby? Right. I used to. I you sold did, it. You sold it. I sold it. Yeah, I sold it to my college roommate. Oh, you did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He wow. he sends me uh, pictures every once in a while when he takes her out. Uh huh. So you must have loved Ford versus Ferrari. I did. I well, I know yeah. this. I the book is fantastic. It's called Go Like Hell, uh -huh. and, and the book is like very much unfiltered. The movie, of course, is much more filtered and not as right. authentic. But the story, they stuck to the story. That story mm -hmm. is absolutely what happened. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, well, I totally enjoyed it. I mean, the yeah. book is just anybody that wants to, is a gearhead and likes that era of racing, read the book, go like hell. Right. Um, back to the Paralympic thing. Yeah. You know, that's a world that I don't know that much about. Like, yeah. Like, help me to understand. Like, what is it that we don't understand about these extraordinary athletes yeah. that you have a glimpse into? Well, you 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 are in a you you are in uh, a unique position where if you chose to, you could work with these athletes. And I know that you've worked with people with uh, impairments. In fact, one of uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his name, uh, who was, uh, who did the five for five, the epic oh, five. Oh, Jason Lester. Yeah. Yeah. Who, yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's got a, he's got a, uh, an arm, right? That yeah. Is, he, he, is, he doesn't have the functional use of his yeah. right arm, although he doesn't like to identify, like he, he, he would prefer to just, you know, do his mm -hmm. own thing, but he did win the SB. Uh, oh, for, right. for being uh, like the the I, I can't remember the category like best you know disabled athlete of the year or something like that. Yeah, I, I guess I, I I sort of like went off off track of what your question is, but you work with the uh, these aspiring para athletes who have uh, have to use very varying degrees of adaption in order to um, in order to function uh -huh. athletically, 
and you realize that every single one of them is 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 a puzzle and it's a puzzle for them too because their body doesn't work right and you know there's so many different ways and and you and I we know the basics the foundations of swimming but when you work for example with a with a, um, a paralympic swimmer or an aspiring paralympic swimmer there's a there's there's like a there's like a code that you need to crack mm. and it's, it's they need to, you need to help them crack it as well because and that code's different for every athlete every right athlete. because they all have a different situation and and here's the thing i've worked with a lot of very good swimmers through the years i just i haven't really been i, I haven't really aspired to coach but i've also seen that oftentimes swimmers specifically and i'm sure it's like this with most athletes who have achieved a certain amount of success they have very a very lazy fair attitude toward getting told something new mm. in fact there's some mm. resistance but these para athletes they're just i mean put put yourself in their shoes like many of them they 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 were completely functional before an accident some of them were were born that way but just think of the the level of frustration and aspiration and bravery that it takes in order to say, I want to be an athlete. I want to do this, even right. though my arm doesn't work right or my legs are paralyzed. It's, it's the, these people are like enthusiasm turned up to 11. Um, and they're just a, they're, they're collectively just an incredibly passionate group. Mm. And that's what originally sunk the hooks in me. I worked with a organization called Angel City Sports. Um, and the first time I worked with them was, I believe it was 2017. And uh, it was formed specifically to provide uh, a Paralympic style competition and development platform for athletes from all over the world, but specifically uh -huh. in the United States to compete in one place. And it's held over the course of a certain amount of days at UCLA. Oh, cool. Like a national sports festival kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And it's called Angel City Games. And so I've been I've I've been part of that. And as president of Southern California Olympians and Paralympians, we we take part in not only doing clinics and helping various athletes, but also like in the opening ceremonies. And uh -huh. and this year was only different in that everything was by remote. Like how how the heck do you right. do a remote swimming clinic? But we pulled it off. And I I, I enlisted the the, the expertise of a very good friend of mine who was on the 1980 Olympic team with me, a guy named Glenn Mills, mm -hmm. who specializes in stroke technique and has mm -hmm. probably the greatest repository of, oh, of a a swimming technique videos. videos. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And they're all available online. And he, he, and so like he, swim TV or something it's, like it's that. It's go swim.tv. Oh, go swim TV. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he, and, and so he, I, thankfully, I, I, I you know, I thought to bring him uh -huh. in because he, he just made it, he made it magic. And, you know, there's just a there's just a lot of magic that are, is involved with the Paralympic movement that is very very different, while being the same as the Olympic movement. There's a purity to it too, right? It, yeah, it feels uncorrupted by you know the the you know the corporate forces that you know grind us all down. Like there's just something yeah. more innocent about it and real. Yeah, I think. I mean, maybe that. I don't know why that is. Uh, maybe it's just their pers their collective perspective is so much different than an able-bodied athlete. But I think it's also, you know, you talk about the corruption of 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 all things commercial. You know, at some point, those athletes are going to really start mm -hmm. getting uh, some commercial exposure, and it's curious, you know, whether or not things will things will change. You know that. Yeah the atmosphere and the in, in sort of like the movement will will change when these athletes become celebrated for what they are which is amazing athletes yeah. with incredible hearts which is what the whole olympic movement is all about yeah 
Yeah, inevitable, I suppose. What do you think is going to happen with Tokyo? I don't know. I have no idea. You you ask anybody high up in the Olymp- you know in the Olympic and Paralympic uh-huh. world, and that's the answer I get. Nobody 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 quite, really knows. Nobody so at some point, knows. a decision is going to have to be made, though, because the, yeah. there's so many moving pieces here. Well, there's so much riding on it. There's yeah. so much writing on it. I and mean, if they don't do it this summer, what does that mean for the Olympic movement at large? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it, it makes me it makes me shudder to think the damage. Yeah. I mean, we're in a we're in a time. You know, COVID has created a a world where we're looking at so much of what we've known and taken for granted is is being is being pulled apart and deflated piece by piece. Um. And I'm I'm terrified that if somehow the 2021 games don't happen, that I, I, Tokyo will be fine. Mm-hmm. Tokyo is a big, you know, city with you know lots and lots of money. They they will make a rebound. But the Olympic movement, man, you know, it won't it it, it will it won't be since like 1980 that the U.S. Olympic movement was almost ruined by the 1980 right. boycott. And I just hope it doesn't get to that point. I just yeah. pray I, that that these these athletes can, can go and com- compete, and that the Olympic movement can do what they set out to do, which is send athletes to go compete at the Olympic and Paralympic Games and, and pursue their dreams. Yeah, um, that's a good place to land this plane. But before I let you go, um, words of wisdom from the life experience of an Olympian, when you talk to young people or young athletes, like what is it that you want to impart to that person about personal um, potential and the path towards connecting with, you know, the best version of who you can be? Yeah. Um, I was just a normal kid growing up. I never had Olympic aspirations, nor did I ever dream that I could achieve such heights. Like if my teachers and my fellow students were to look at me, you know, in fifth or sixth grade and say, okay, one of you is going to compete in the Olympic Games and eventually go study at Stanford, it wouldn't have been me. And it was not on my radar either. And my point is, is that my life was transformed not by going to the Olympic Games, but by the desire and aspirations to go to the Olympic Games and the hard work and dedication that it took to get to that point where I could even fathom going to the Olympic Games. And in that respect, that aspect of life is accessible to anyone. And you don't have to aspire to be an Olympic athlete or a Paralympic athlete. Maybe you aspire to be the local political activist or a professor in sociology or an actor or a guru of podcasts <laughs> such as yourself. Please, no. No, no. But I mean, my point <clears throat> is that you can do it with applying yourself. And that's where the magic happens is realizing that if you dedicate yourself towards something that you can begin writing your own tickets. Beautifully put, my friend. Thanks, I Rich. love you, John Moffat. Thank you for love sharing you too, Rich. with me today. I'm so uh, happy that we are able to hang out and share stories and and uh, commune uh, because it is few and far between, unfortunately, just because of 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 our of our lives being busy. 
Yeah, super so, grateful uh, to have you in my life and to have this experience with you today, man. I love you so much, and that was um, very meaningful to me. Uh, and I think people are going to get a lot out of it. So thanks, well, man. thanks, thanks for it. Means it means a lot for you to want me to be on your podcast. Oh, of course, man. It only it took seven uh, years uh, from the last time uh, we got I, it done. Uh, although I look at the folks that you. Are, have been able to interview with through the years, and it's just an unbelievable array. The, the the distance that you have have come from those, you know, from 1990 or uh, 2007 when you were first starting embarking upon your journey, which I remember very clearly. To to now, it's a testament to what I was talking about that you know, hard work and dedication and and a vision and realizing that that you might be able to write your ticket if you work hard and do it. It's never guaranteed. Mm. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Like I said, I used to visit you at the Paramount lot and I was like, is there any job here? Could you, <laughs> you were like, well, you could become in a city. Like I was like trying to figure out what I wanted to do and it, you know, it took a very long time, but um, grateful to be where I am, man. Cool. Uh, so if you're digging on John, the new podcast might be called uh, Sports, Sports Life Balance. Life Balance. <laughs> Coming towards a podcast platform, do you have a release date for it? I'm, we're looking toward releasing it during the holidays at some point, around Thanksgiving okay. and into the holidays. Cool. Um, I'll be sure to share that out. And uh, any any anywhere else you want to point people? Well, look look uh, look for Rich Roll is one of my guests. That's right. We're gonna we're gonna now we're gonna take a break and then we're gonna just keep rolling right into your podcast. So, um, yeah, honored to be a guest on your show. And when of course that goes up, I'll uh, I'll let all you guys know. So thanks, man. Love I you. really appreciate it. Peace. Can you feel the love? So good. I love John. Hope you guys enjoyed that. John is not much of a social media guy. You can find him on Instagram at John underscore Moffat 27. But the best way to support him is by checking out his most worthy new podcast, Sports Life Balance, Lessons from Sports for Life. It launches in a few weeks. It's gonna be a good one, my friends. I'll keep you posted with links and all of that as it becomes available. Reminder that my new book, Voicing Change, is available exclusively through my website, richroll.com slash VC. We're shipping globally November 10th, so pick up your copy today. We also have another Roll On AMA coming up this week, so give me and Adam a call at 424-235-4626. Leave me a message with your question, and we just might get to it. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify. Share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on today's show, Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis for videoing today's show. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers for portraits. DK for advertiser relationships and theme music by Tyler, Trapper, and Harry. Thanks for the love, you guys. you back here in a couple days. We're going to talk about the election. We're going to answer questions. We're going to have a good time. It's going to be amazing. Until then, peace. Plans. Namaste.